Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um so our big story in this edition is on targeting and intimidation of the South Asian press. especially in Pakistan, Bangladesh and Myanmar. And in around South Asia in 5 minutes, we'll be talking about a currency swap between Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, China's land grab in Bhutan, and stories of environmental exploitation in Nepal and Sri Lanka. Let's begin by talking about recent attacks on the press. Yes, Raisa. And this is quite a worrying trend from the region. Now, we've been speaking about this quite a bit among ourselves and we all agree that this is not something new um nevertheless it's it's alarming how normalized intimidations arrests attacks on the press have become so starting with rosina islam from bangladesh who works for the daily newspaper protomalo now she was arrested on uh, may 17th when she went to attend a meeting at the ministry of health and family welfare where the officials they held her for more than 5 hours and accused her of taking pictures of official documents um, containing sensitive information now while she was being held she was denied access to a doctor even though she felt unwell and fainted yeah it's quite a concerning case marlon and i heard she was released on bail yes uh, she was granted bail on the 23rd and her hearing is scheduled for 15th of july Now there have been quite a bit of backlash uh, from within Bangladesh um news outlets have uh, condemned the arrest and uh, there have a widespread uh, protests uh, organized by journalists unions and advocacy groups uh, within the country Yeah and and what I found interesting about this case is also that in contrast to say the arrest of photojournalist Shahidul Alam in 2018 there was a a uh, much more rapid and extensive mobilization from within the you know the fraternity of journalists and uh, within the country also um and probably i think you know has something to do with the fact that this was a reporter working for a you know mainstream newspaper yeah. um what she was doing was seen largely as a kind of non political thing as a you know a story on governance or bad governance and and it probably helped that you know mobilizing um these various journalist groups and federations also have some kind of leverage with the government um you know certainly much more than an uh, than an individual photojournalist or activist would have and there was a similar situation recently with the pakistani journalist asad ali turf um known for his critical coverage of the the country's military on his youtube channel um he was attacked last week inside his on home by three men who questioned him on his sources of income and funding yeah and and this was in response to a complaint that um he defamed an institution of uh, government of pakistan on social media now this is according to the summons uh, but it does not specify the social media post in question or the government institution that was defamed further it warns that he could face uh, criminal prosecution if he does not comply yeah and i think you know one problem with these attacks is also it's 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 never exactly clear who's behind these attacks uh, in case of asatur what is clear is that his journalism was not 
popular among the Pakistani establishment, especially the military. Um, and he has this quite popular YouTube channel where he posts stories and blogs and recently did a story about this um, questionable promotion of a, a bureaucrat who also happens to be a brother of the ISI chief. So, so that um, many people assume is what got him into trouble. Um, of course, there have been other worrying developments also, including uh, one very prominent TV journalist, Hamid Mir, losing his uh, primetime TV spot. Uh, Hamid Mir is quite prominent. He, in the past, has actually been shot at um, also and, you know, came back to journalism and uh, now has been actually taken off his show by his employer's uh, Geo Jung group um, for making a speech during a rally that was in support of Asatur. And the reason they give for... Um, uh, for, for, for taking this decision is that uh, he made some unseemly remarks during the speech. Now, during one part of the speech, he talks about how journalists, you know, have this embarrassing information about private lives of, of army generals in Pakistan. He doesn't mention them, but uh, that's clearly implied. Uh, and the fact that, you know, if if they can come into our homes and kind of go after us and assault us, then we also have the ability to to make public certain embarrassing information, so that seems to be what the the what what the employer found uh, problematic, and therefore uh, um, took took him off the show. And uh, but I think there's been some more recent troubling events, also, right? Yeah. So more recently, along the same kind of lines, another journalist and anchor, um, Asma Shirazi, who's also kind of uh, be been subject to attacks in the past. And the organization that she's affiliated with, Freedom Network, was attacked by a so-called investigative journalist for being an Indian operation, which was based on a misleading reading of the public domain information about Freedom Network's website. This case is particularly troubling because it was someone who, you know, the person who exposed this identifies himself as a journalist. And, you know, uses and even co-ops the language of investigative journalism, um, but does so disingenuously because um, apparently this investigative journalist didn't realize um, or doesn't know that website hosting companies have servers in different countries around the world. And um, over in Myanmar, on the 24th of May, Frontier Myanmar's managing editor, Danny Fenster, was detained at Yangon International Airport while he was waiting to board a flight to Kuala Lumpur. Um, in a statement by Frontier Myanmar, they stated that they have not been able to confirm with the authorities why he has been detained or what charges he is facing. And according to AAPPB, their latest update from the 21st of May, almost 88 journalists have been arrested since the February 1st coup. Yeah, that's um, quite a worrying statistic. Um, and interestingly, whilst the news of Danny Fenster's uh, detention broke, there was also a news story of a former Frontier uh, Myanmar journalist, Mrat Kiao Tu, who fled the country and he was stranded at the Frankfurt airport after trying to seek asylum in Germany. Um, he was eventually redirected to Spain because of an EU law, because he had a Schengen visa there, um, even though he already had two job offers in Germany. Um, and that incident has also led to some discussion about how EU procedures relating to politically persecuted individuals should allow or recognize existing support networks. 
again uh, you know like marlon mentioned at the beginning these are not surprising new developments and in a way continuation of a trend we've been seeing for some years now uh, i mean what might be worth noting is the incredible ease with which you know critical journalists can be attacked like this and not just by governments but you know also by other private actors including fellow journalists or so called journalists and others in the larger kind of public sphere or civil society and and often with so little engagement with the substance of their work um and also i think really worrying is the frequency with which you know this conspiratorial accusations of being an indian agent or pakistani agent or you know increasingly maybe now chinese agent or american agent i think these things will unfortunately become a bit more common now shall we move on to our next segment around south asia in 5 minutes Sure. Um so on June 2nd the Singapore flagged vessel Express Pearl sank off the coast of Sri Lanka raising concerns of an oil spill after an attempt to tow it out into deeper waters failed. Now the chairman of Master Divers which is a specialist in towing operations has already said that the ship sinking was entirely due to government negligence adding that they had not been consulted and that the ship could have actually been salvaged. Now the crew discovered an acid leak which was possibly due to poor packaging while they were still out in the Arabian Sea and this happened as far back as 3 weeks before the fire broke out. But unfortunately both India and Qatar said that they had no manpower or equipment or the expertise to safely unload and handle this leaking container. Now meanwhile it's been revealed in court that the local agent for the Express Pearl deleted an email from the ship's captain about the leak and asked Colombo Harbour to admit the ship as it was in a dangerous and unsafe condition. Our former editor Anahita Mojumdar raised the question of, you know, what international laws govern a disaster at sea? And as far as we can tell there's several laws that can apply which include the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. the 1973 international convention for the prevention of pollution from ships or marpol for short the international maritime dangerous goods code which governs the coverage of dangerous goods in package form and there's a host of other laws and conventions for oil spills specifically now in the event that there's a collision or another incident of navigation It is usually the country whose flag the ship is bearing or else you know the country that the captain is from which bears legal responsibility. In general it's the polluter who pays. But it also appears that if the ship is out in international waters then maritime law applies unless the ship is close to a particular territory or state. So the state minister on this subject Kanchana Vijayasekara actually um noted on a Twitter space that while maritime law states that ports do have to render assistance when there's a disaster unfolding um they you know in situations where they have no expertise or they're unable to render assistance which appears to have been the case um here then it's more of a gray area Now the impact of the ship sinking has already been termed an environmental disaster for Sri Lanka with wide-ranging impacts that may last for years to come. So around 5600 fishing boats have been affected because fishing has been suspended along an 80 km stretch 
and tons of plastic nurdles, which are little plastic pellets used in creating other plastic items, have been washing up on Sri Lanka's beaches, raising concerns that marine species will ingest them. People have also been asked not to handle the nurdles as they may be covered in chemicals. Um, so we do know the ship was carrying nitric acid and a host of other chemicals as well as cosmetics. So uh, environmental news have also made headlines in Nepal uh, this past week um, after the recently announced government budget uh, basically lifted ban on extraction of gravel, sand, stone and other aggregates from uh, from the country. Now, the argument is that um, this was in a part of an effort to reduce Nepal's growing trade deficit and the intended kind of buyer is, you know, companies in India, for example. But um, this has raised a lot of questions about the, you know, the kind of environmental damage uh, this kind of extraction can do and has already done, uh, particularly in this uh, hill range that, you know, runs from east to west called the Chure Hill Range. Um, and over the past decade, decade and a half, there's been a lot of reporting on it, on, on how um, unregulated extraction of these things, these aggregates, uh, you know, partly because of kind of growing infrastructure uh, projects and construction projects within the country, but also because there's a lot of demand for these things across the border in South in India. So uh, there's been a wide public outcry against this um, because this seems like, a, you know, a terrible way to uh, manage an economic problem. Um, and the, the media, the civil society, a lot of environmentalists, and I think general public has been quite uh, critical of this, of this new measure. Um, but uh, it remains to be seen how exactly the government will respond to this in the coming days. Owen Bhutan, an article published in the magazine Foreign Policy in early May, states that China has built an entire town with roads, a power plant, a communications base, military and police outposts, and a warehouse, almost eight kilometers into the territory of Bhutan. Now, China and Bhutan, they share a border that extends to more than 450 kilometers. And over in Bangladesh, um, Bangladesh's central bank has, in principle, approved a $200 million currency swap agreement with Sri Lanka to help the country tide over its foreign exchange crisis and looming debt repayment schedule. Um, now, this is a significant move because this is the first time that Bangladesh is extending financial assistance to another country. And Bangladesh has outpaced both India and Pakistan in terms of GDP per capita, um, with Bangladesh's economy expected to grow by 6.8% in 2021. And now it's time for our culture section bookmarked. So, so there's been a lot of discussion in the Indian press and social media uh, last few weeks about the fate of India's National Archives based in New Delhi after it became clear that part of the structure that holds some of these archival records uh, were to be demolished as part of uh, the ongoing Central Vista project. Uh, now, this Central Vista project is this massive redevelopment project in India's central uh, administrative area and so it seemed as if an annex would, would come down and it held, you know, national archival records. Um, so many scholars and researchers, especially historians, uh, have been quite concerned about this. And uh, especially because there isn't a lot of clarity about what happens to the records, about the relocation plans. Um, now, it seems uh, the actual structure uh, that exists right now will not be demolished because 
Uh, it is a heritage building, but the records will be moved. And the worry is about how, uh, you know, this relocation of these massive amounts of records will take place. And if this will also entail a shift in accessibility of the records in the future, I mean, that's one of the big concerns also. Um, it's important to also remember that, um, you know, with all the caveats about state archives and, and, and their limits, um, these are also important records of not just the Indian nation state, but also um, because of the nature of the colonial government, uh, you know, records of large parts of South Asia. And similarly, uh, an interesting thing we came across on speaking of archives is uh, this visual documentation of Nepal's queer movement called We Are Queer uh, Visual Project. We'll, we'll also put a link to that in the uh, on our website. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up um, archives because this week, starting on 7th June, marks um, the beginning of International Archives Week. And it's also been 40 years since the burning of the Jaffna Library on May 31st, 1981. Um, this was one of the largest in Asia when um, 95,000 volumes, some of which were rare and centuries old, were destroyed. So my recommendation this month would be an article from our own archives, um, which is Sundar Ganeshan's essay from 2014 on the fall and resurrection of the Jaffna Library. In this essay, he essentially notes that while it's important to recover all that was lost, there's still much work to be done in restoring and rebuilding the Jaffna Public Library. Interesting. And um, so um, I ended up watching this two th- 2019 movie, Ib Ale U, um, which is centered around the story of a migrant worker, Anjani, whose job is to shoo away monkeys in Lutian's Delhi. So the movie I found, which was on Netflix, um, it was full of social satire and commentary about the nature of contract labor. Um, and it made several kind of very subtle uh, statements on class and about the imbalance of power between supervisors and employees, which was then kind of passed down the chain of employment. Um, and it kind of just highlighted the invisible work of migrant workers. Yeah, I, I watched it over the weekend too. Um, and to be honest, it was uh, quite traumatic, at least to me. It brought up a lot of uh, repressed memories. I don't know about you guys, but I've had some close encounters with monkeys. Uh, they are ferocious. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of my friends used to say, um, he had this like really nice statement about monkeys. He, he called them, um, monkeys are the cockroaches of the mammalian world. Um, but yeah, getting back to the, to the movie, um, I, I agree with uh, what you said, Raisa. It, you know, class is definitely at the, at the core of the movie and, um, I liked the movie and I and I felt it brought up a lot of pertinent issues, but it, it felt like something was uh, was missing. Um, you know, apart from Anjani, the 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 other characters I felt were not fully developed. Um, you know, like the character uh, of the sister, the character of the brother-in-law, and and Kumud, you know, Anjani's love interest. You know, their struggles were introduced, but they were not like developed further. Um, you know, sometimes they even felt like you know props. You know, who were there to kind of amplify Anjani's character. Acting, I, I found to be like super good. Yeah, I agree, actually. Uh, when you said that, I kind of agree that there are some characters who could have been fleshed out a little more. Um, I think, though, one of my favorite kind of 
well, maybe favorite isn't the right word, but I think the scene that to me kind of captured a lot of what the themes in the movie were about was this kind of party um, that Anjani and uh, his friend Mahinder were invited to and they kind of had to um, chase away monkeys from there, even though there were no monkeys. And it's this performance, you know, even they themselves know that it's absurd, but um, they, you know, enthusiastically carry out their job because they know that they're going to get paid at the end. And that kind of um, highlighted a lot of the tensions and like the core message of the movie for me. Um, what were you guys' you know, what were your favorite scenes? Um, the most interesting scene for me would be the one where Anjani is trapped by his fellow workers in a cage meant for monkeys and oh, they're yeah. mocking him, which I thought was a neat metaphor and kind of like exploitation of labor and where kind of these humans are holding this other human captive um, and it's almost dehumanizing, which is something we saw with the recent migrant crisis, for example. Yeah, and I like the scene uh, with, um, you know, the brother-in-law who who works as a security guard, how he, um, how he brings home this, uh, his newly assigned gun, um, you know, after his night shift. And it's, it's quite absurd. It's because it's early morning and he's trying to, like, you know, hide this heavy and long gun from, you know, like people and kids. Um, and there's one point where he's in front of the, like, the, the train tracks and, you know, he's trying to manage his gun, his bike, his scarf, um, you know, for like two minutes. So I, I felt that was very, uh, you know, kind of an absurdist scene that captures, I think, the overall absurdism and satire of the, of the, of the movie. But what do you guys think about the ending? It felt a little abrupt, right? Yeah, I guess it was a bit sudden. It was also quite surreal, you know. It just suddenly cut to this very surreal kind of scene. But it also reminded me that it was, I guess, kind of touching on Anjani's need to escape, like escapism and um, also highlighting that he had some skills that weren't appreciated in the job that he was currently in. You know, he had this kind of creative, kind of performative yeah. spirit, which yeah. is captured in that, like, final scene. But And dancing, know, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. These are things that would have been appreciated if he were kind of not a contract laborer or migrant worker. But yeah. it's it was him escaping, but also I felt showcasing his skills. So I liked it. But yeah, yeah it was quite abrupt and a bit surreal, I guess. No, I agree completely. Like, he like his his creativity like he he has all these different approaches to you know chasing away the monkeys and uh, you know which i think is is quite underappreciated yeah um you know in in his job um by the way uh, you know out of curiosity did you guys try out the sounds <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't think that i could replicate that <laughs> like my in this tone i i was quite impressed by the way they were <laughs> yeah that that was like pretty pretty nice yeah and um yeah i think we should spare our listeners you guys can check it out on youtube but it's fascinating right you know i think next time i encounter a monkey i'm gonna try it out and see if it works <laughs> will it work on other animals and and birds that's the question well, <laughs> only monkeys well, try there's only one <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen the film <laughs> So that's only one way to find out, I guess. We just have to encounter some kind of wildlife. Yeah. 
<laughs> and plus i think shubhanga needs to you know if you want to be part of this discussion you need to watch the film <laughs> or watch, watch our recommendation <laughs> i need to see yeah, i need to watch beyond the more than just the trailer anyway on that note <laughs> that's it for this edition of south asia sphere Um, do head to our website himalmag.com to see the cartoons illustrating this episode by Gihandi Chikera and while you're at it check out our membership plans and support our work thanks everyone bye 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 for more himal podcasts go to himalmag.com/podcasts